Hey there, welcome back in to Talking Catholic with David O'Gray. I'm David O'Gray and I'm talking Catholic with Christian Rosario here. We're talking about his conversion story. I'm just conversion to the Catholic Church at a very young age. But it doesn't stop there. We're going to talk about his journey east. He's now a Melkite right Christian, a Melkite right Catholic. And um, if you've never seen a black man in America who's a Melkite, here you go. You got to listen to this story, how he found his way east and how much he loves the Eastern liturgy. Also, we spent a, a good um, bit of time in the, this talk talking about some of the strange ideologies that you find in the black community, such as the Hebrew Israelites, the five percenters, the nation of Islam, the problems with those. And um, so, man, this is a really fascinating uh, conversion story that you have to listen to. And we'll begin right after the eight-second introduction and talking Catholic. And uh, eight seconds is just enough time for you to go ahead and click like, subscribe, and share. If you're listening on the podcast version, make sure you you rate, you subscribe, you comment. And um, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit that bell so you can be notified uh, for new um, videos. So I will see you on the other side. Christian Rosario, welcome in to Talking Catholic. How's it going, man? Good. How are you? Yeah, good to have you here. Now, I met you online, and I was really fascinated by your uh, conversion story coming into um, the church. And uh, so I want everybody to hear the story. I really do, because I think it's really, really, really interesting. And I really dig your experience, uh, the diversity of, of um, some things you've been through. And so I want to just start from the beginning. Um, tell us about your, your faith background. All right. Well, to begin, I grew up in a very Christian household, so I actually was born and raised in the Kojic Church. For okay. those who don't know what that is, that's the Church of God in Christ, and it's actually a predominantly African-American Pentecostal church. Um, so my grandparents and my mother raised me in that faith, and I was um, even baptized as an infant. Now, that's actually a surprise for some because... Some Protestant churches don't believe in infant baptism. So, um, yes, I grew up in that church, but at the same time, growing up, I was actually attending a Catholic school. So I began attending that school when I was at least like four years old, four yeah. or five years old. And um, the name of that school was St. Joseph's uh, Catholic School, actually here in Connecticut. And it was uh, predominantly Polish. Now, okay. going to that school, I really loved it, believe it or not. I absolutely loved it. I have a lot of like nostalgic memories, even like, you know, sometimes I even go and visit there for mass sometimes because it just brings back so many good memories. Yeah. Um, so while I was going to that school, we would have like, um, you know, like catechism classes, or we would even have, let's say like daily mass. And I remember going to mass and like just the silence and the reverence and just seeing the stained glass windows and all the images and just thinking, wow, this is absolutely beautiful. There's mm -hmm. something here that, you know, I'm missing that, you know, where I am right now. But obviously I didn't really know the difference. Um, so eventually when I was eight years old, that school has closed. And this is something that we unfortunately see in the church right now where a lot of churches are closing and a lot of schools are closing because of the, I don't know, funds, etc. So, yeah. with that being said, as I began to be at least like 11 or 12 years old, 
me and my mom, we left our former church and began going to a non-denominational church. Um, I'm actually very thankful for that experience because going to that church is actually where I began to actually be really, really, really interested in religion. Not that I wasn't as a child, I was actually very spiritual as a child. In fact, as a child, I was given like my first rosary and my brown scapular from that school, but I didn't know what it was at the time. Yeah, yeah. But um, we would watch movies of like St. Bernadette and like her praying to the Theotokos with the rosary around her hands. And sometimes I would imitate that as a kid and I was praying. Like I said, so when I was at this non-denominational parish, um, I began to be really interested in religion, and then my mom would eventually enroll me into like some of the youth camps and stuff of that sort. And so when I was there, as time like progressed and stuff, I eventually got you know how they say you get saved. Yeah. And like at least thirteen years old, and I got saved. And um, you know they had the altar call. For those who don't know what this is, it's an altar call. So basically, um. The pastor will um, reach out to everybody that's in the church and say, if you have not accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, please come forth. And you're going to say this prayer. And then there's like, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. There's like no way out of it. So like, it's like the once saved, always saved thing. Now, personally, at a young age, I had a very, very uh, hard time accepting that. Because um, as a young teenage kid, you know, I was... um, even after I got saved, I was indulging in like different sins. I was hanging around like bad crowds of people because I, you know, I grew up around like a rough crowd. Some were like in gangs, some were um, involved with like drugs, and uh, you know, just using women. All different kinds of things you can imagine. Some things I'm not going to say on here because I'm going to keep it PG, especially since there might be children of yours. But yeah. you know, just things, things you can imagine, like growing up in like you know, like a rough uh, neighborhoods and stuff. And so. I remember the next year when I went back to, v- to it was called VBS, you know, Vacation Bible School. Um, I would ask, like, you know, some of the youth pastors, I would say, you know, how am I still saved? And, like, you know, we're doing all these different sins and stuff. Like, there's just, like, this guilty conscience that I had at a young age. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what we now know, like, well, not, what I now know as a Catholic is that, you know, I was engaging in mortal sin. But I did not know it at the time, obviously. Yeah. But that's what I would call it now. And so, um, eventually, I began getting really interested in, like, like I said earlier, in religion and stuff. And when I was going to these VBS camps, I would also hear a lot of negative things about Catholicism, oh, such yeah. as they worship, they worship statues, they worship Mary, they worship the Pope. They think the Pope's Jesus Christ on Earth for crying out loud, or just all these different like baseless rhetorical like accusations against the church that are just i mean did you did you did you know that back then i mean did you or i mean did you have been has you had some experience with the catholic church did you know that wasn't true um well i had like something in my conscience telling me that these are just like not true at all because i was thinking well number one my ancestors were catholics we'll get more into that later and plus um you know the church i was going to as a kid had a lot of Catholic elements within it. Like, it would have stained glass windows yeah. and stuff of that sort. So I'm just like, how is the Catholic Church so evil as these people are saying it is? Huh. So, yeah. um, eventually, I began doing my own research. Catholic Answers was actually a huge help to me, in addition to just reading some books and, um, like, about, like, the early church fathers 
you know, when I discovered that the early church was the Catholic Church, you know, how they believed in the Eucharist and the veneration of saints, et cetera, et cetera. We could go down a whole list of things. Um, it really, like, opened my mind to thinking, okay, this is the true church. And yeah. if Christianity has all these different denominations within it, they can't all be true. You know, right. I know some churches now, they brand themselves as, like, non-denominational. But that within itself is a denomination because I could... Uh, go to two different non-denominational churches and right. I have two different like conflicting theologies right, like right. for example there's a non-denominational church here in my town and they lean more into the Calvinistic understanding of things whereas the okay. church I was going to was more about like uh, they would call it I'm trying to think of the name I think it was like something around like Arianism or something of that sort um, yeah. um so it was like just very interesting just seeing like the two conflicting things right there. So that was just something that like that did not like sit well with me. So. Okay, okay, okay. That's just so what so would you say like during during high school you had an actual relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, because you you mean you go on a summer vacation Bible school, you're you're encountering this once save, always save. Um, your your first experience is at an altar call, which is weird to me because it's not actually an altar. There's no sacrifices, right? Altars have sacrifices, so <laughs> I never understood why they call it an altar. But I mean, this is your experience at at this age. Did, did you feel like you had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as they say? Absolutely, because um, as I mentioned earlier, even when I was a kid, I was always growing up to know about Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, um, even like as a kid, I was very spiritual. So throughout this time, yes, I really did have a, like a relationship with Christ. Yeah. But I did not know the proper way of like expressing that relationship. Like, I did not wasn't like you know going to liturgy or reading the scriptures or just like doing all the spiritual things that we have within the church, such as the rosary, the Jesus prayer, the uh, in the Melchite Church we have what's called canons, which are like basically litanies in the Latin Church, and um. They have like different prayers from the Psalms and um, just different prayers that are came from the church in our liturgy. And for those who do not know, in the Melchite Church, we celebrate the Byzantine liturgy. And so our fathers are uh, Saint, say like uh, uh, John Chrysostom and Saint Basil. And mm -hmm. so a lot of like the prayers that they like, you know, would use were like actually meant to catechize the faithful, such as okay. you know, things on, like okay. the incarnation of Christ, etc. Yeah. And so um, we have all these in our prayers. Now, as a kid, I have to like, admit that I didn't really truly know how to pray. And I did not truly know, you know, how to really grow with God and grace, as we, like, mm. you know, we can now do with sacraments. So yeah. to answer your question, yes, I did have it, but not to the phones as I have it now. Yeah. Yeah, so walk us up to the point where you start, you're starting to, um, what, what's happening? What makes you start looking at the, the Catholic Church? Or tell us about that transition from proud of Protestantism. Sure, sure. So um, to bring back uh, up the VBS camps I was going to and stuff, like I said, I heard a lot of bad things about Catholicism. So I have to say that I had to have been at least 13 years old. And, and uh, we had a very nice youth, uh, youth pastor. Her name was... Um, I think her name was Miss Lisa. Very beautiful, pious soul. And um, African-American, just like us. And she just, you know, one thing first I want to bring up is that 
she was not afraid to preach to us the reality of hell. <laughs> okay, like, you know how some, um, like, youth groups, they don't even dare touch that subject because they might scare the kids away? Well, she wasn't afraid to bring that subject up. And so going back to what I mentioned earlier about the one saved, always saved stuff, as um, we were talking about, that was one thing that would, like, trigger my mind. So I could always go to her about questions and stuff of that sort regarding, like, theology or just the Bible, etc. Because I had all these questions for her. So yeah. she would always, like, put all these seeds in our hearts, you know, cutting um, to the marrow of our hearts, as, you know, it says in the book of Revelations. And so um, I remember going to her once, and I was telling her, I said, you know, I can't really agree with that doctrine about going to the altar and things like that. I said, There's, there has to be something more to this. And eventually, you know, when I asked her these questions, you know, she couldn't really answer them. But then by later on, eventually expressed my interest in Catholicism because when I was hearing these accusations, I would personally look stuff up. And I said, this isn't really like what they're talking about. Like, this is what <laughs> you know? Um, and so... Believe it or not, she was actually very supportive, but she brought it to the attention of another youth pastor who's actually oh. a Catholic himself. Yeah. So he comes to me and he's like, okay, why are you interested in the Catholic Church? You know, he was like expressing to me how it's like this big deceptive organization meant to drag you to hell, so to speak. <laughs> so some of the things he would bring up was like, well, did you know that the Catholic Church doesn't really let you read the Bible? That's why on the on the um the calendar have they have like certain like Bible passages to read. They don't want you to read the entire Bible for yourself. That was one thing he brought up. Another thing he brought up is how Catholics re-sacrifice Jesus every single time they have the mass, and how um like feel like basically in a sense kind of mock the church. Like you know how the little bells they have they ding 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 ding. ding. Yeah, that's you know he's just pointing like all these like different like pagan references and stuff of that sort, which make yeah. more logical sense. Um. And no, those are just some of the things that he brought up. In addition to, I think he also mentioned the Pope of Rome and stuff. And so, me being very new in my faith, I had like no defense. I was like very actually in fear, believe it or not. You know, and uh, I'm like a 13 year old kid. I had like no way of defending myself. Yeah. And so, um, with that in mind, he was just basically like, you know, showing up all these points how the church is this very deceptive organization and I should just stay away from it altogether. Yeah. Um. So believe it or not, that actually challenged me to learn more about you know my inquiring Catholic faith. Oh. So I'm like, you know what? They bring up all these different arguments. I'm like, okay, I'll bring up something even harder next time they challenge me, kind of thing. So um, I'm actually very thankful for that experience because had I not had that experience of being challenged, I would um not be where I am today. And yeah, so, so you um, you were you were. Here you are 13, and you're actually considering the Catholic faith, and you're encountering people who are trying to dissuade you to not go in that direction. Right. By giving you all these mistruths about it. Right. And then you, you use that as ammo to dig deeper into what the Catholic Church actually teaches. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> because, and another thing is that I actually personally felt insulted because number one all of my ancestors from like my grandmother's side were roman catholic they come from a country called cape verde it was a portuguese colony at the um until like the 1970s okay. and um to give you a little bit of background my ancestors they came to this country in the early 1900s 
and they mm. went to the local Roman Catholic Church. So they were very devout Catholics. And so when I, I brought up to the pastor, I said, well, you know, my grandfather, my great grandfather was Roman Catholic. And he, he said something along the lines of, you know, Catholics go to hell. And that's something that really turned me off as well. I'm like, you just now you're saying my my great my great grandfather's in hell. Wow. So that was that was something that just like really, really like pushed me away even more. Yeah. Um so yeah, my ancestors were Catholics and um I want to dig more into this later on, but okay. I have to I have to attribute um my great great grandmother as like a source of me coming into the church. I never got to meet her. She died in the 1970s, but I think it was by her prayers that I became a Catholic. Yeah. Because she was very, she was very devout within herself. Um, when I was first inquiring into coming into the church and stuff, my mom actually was able to retrieve some of her old books. So besides the Bible, my very first Catholic book was a 1962 missile that belonged to her. In fact, I have it right here. It's all torn up and stuff. But this was her wow. 1962 missile. And wow. so it has like that very nice old smell to it. I love the smell of old books. Um, she also, we also found this as a little certificate for her. And it's talking about how she was a part of a Eucharistic uh, society of like oh, wow. adoration. So this is coming before like the Second Vatican Council, of course. Yeah. And um, we also have her Pope Paul the Sixth Bible, which she's um has also been lent to me. Now this is also torn up, but you can see how huge it is. But yeah, these are all things that were like belonging to her, and so like I said, I think it was by her prayers also that I wow. came into the church. So I often go and visit her uh, gravesite, which is actually in a Catholic cemetery not too long far from me, and yeah. um just to pray for her soul and you know just to like basically thank her for like bringing me to the faith and so man, my God, that, that is so I got beautiful grace. Man. yeah yes. i'm glad you had that rich tradition because I, I could i can't imagine what, what's that like to knowing I mean, you know a lot of your family history and, and to know this that your family has a long long catholic tradition man that's amazing that's a blessing Absolutely. yeah so keep going on with your story yeah so um when i was 14 years old was the first time I've been to a Catholic mass in years, probably like at least 10 years, maybe not even more. And um, so how did I get to go into a Catholic mass? Well, number one, you have to remember that at the time, my family wasn't really open to me going to a Catholic church because okay. of, um, like I said, my family was, uh, they eventually left the church in the 80s. And I like to blame a lot of that about, upon like the liberalism that was in the church. We'll talk more about that later on, because you know me and you both have the same position um, yeah. on this um, subject. But um, they were not truly properly catechized. Let's just start with that. And so they didn't really understand the necessity of like why it's like good to be a Catholic or why it's necessary to go to the sacraments or what's the purpose of going to the mass, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They didn't have any understanding of that. Mm. And so a lot of my family began to leave the church in the 80s, like I said, and um, they began going to like the local black churches. And so they have like a long, they had some like anti-Catholic baggage that they just like had on their hearts still. I guess also from previous experiences, I don't really know the details of it all, but I just think that um, a lot of that had like a lot of influence of like what they thought about me going to a Catholic church. And I guess I could also say a lot of it was out of fear 
am I just trying to protect me? Mm -hmm. As the Bible says, you know, you have to follow God rather than man. And so I felt this calling to just keep like searching for myself, you know, not listening to other people's uh, opinions and stuff because I'm somebody that doesn't like let like other people like basically influence what I think. I like to look for myself, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, um, when I be, like, began expressing like my interest to go to like a Catholic church, there was like a lot of hostility towards it at first. Okay. But then they began to be open-minded. And that's because in my freshman year of high school, a good friend of mine, his name is Paul, he's actually going to be in the um, NFL soon. Okay. Um, he saw that I had a miraculous medal around my neck. And I found that miraculous medal through like all like my old piles of like, um, books and stuff that, that was um, given to me by like the Catholic school that I used to go to. And um, he's like, hey, so are you a Catholic? And I said, well, yeah, I'm like, I'm interested in the church and stuff. And he basically invited me to go to Mass with him one Sunday. And oh, okay. boy, I was, he said, come with me this, um, this Sunday to Mass. And I'm like, really? He's like, yes, come to, come to Mass. I said, okay. Now, I was very, very excited. So that Saturday night, I did not sleep at all. <laughs> wow! Sunday, night, like, Sunday morning, I just did not sleep. You were excited. And, you were pumped up. You were ready to go. Yeah, and um, my mom was actually open to it at first too because growing up, I was very, very like to myself. Like I had friends and stuff, but I was like a homebody. So my, my mom was like, "You know what? This is a good opportunity for my son to, you know, be with his friends and stuff. Why not go to mass? He's not out there selling drugs like the other kids are or getting into trouble. He's doing something positive with himself." So you know what? I'm gonna be supportive and let him go to mass. So I began going to mass with him almost every like week. And I just remember the first time I went to mass with him, I was just very excited. I felt like a lots of peace and joy within my heart. But I gotta also say that I was a little disappointed because it wasn't what I was really expecting from what I was reading within my Great grandmother's 1962 missile. Oh, I was expecting, oh, I was expecting oh, okay. like the incense, the Gregorian chant, you name it. But um, <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> I was very excited to be there. So yeah, I was so you had, you have been you, so you have been reading your grandmother's, but you have been reading the missile. Yes. Now your, now's your understanding of Catholicism, what the 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 mass was. Exactly. You knew it by reading it. But yes. wow, yeah, uh -huh. I was like, Where's the Antonio and Atario date or the um, Confidio de Omnipotente? I don't see it anywhere. Where, what's going on, man? This is this so, is like um, some this is like this is like the time when I read the whole what did I read? The whole Lord of Rings series It's like a, a three or four page book series, and then the movies came out, and I'm, I'm like, Okay, where's this character at? Like, what's going on? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's like this disappointment. Yep. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I'll go to mass every Sunday, and eventually, at age sixteen, I was received into the church, and okay. um, that was one of the best days of my life. That was on Easter vigil. Um, oh. I would be going to CCD classes because um, the RCIA was like explicitly for adults. Okay. So, um, but the teachers they saw that I had a lot, of, like a lot of knowledge of Catholicism, so they let me come into the church earlier than I was expected to come into the church. Okay. Um, so that was just a very, very uh, lovely night, and um, that had to have been at least almost eight years now, or nine years, maybe. I mean, time is flying, and you know, I, I just can't believe how much 
time has passed since I have received into the church because it feels like it was just yesterday. Yeah. So, um, there's my story right there. I just remember um, receiving the Holy Eucharist and having my confirmation and stuff. And it was just like, wow. You know, now, were you, were you, were you, um, were you baptized into the Catholic Church or was your baptism you received in your Pentecostal church? Was that, was that sufficient? Okay. So, um, believe it or not, I was baptized twice, and I'll get into that. As a child, I was baptized, but to be honest with you, I don't even know what formula they did it in, because you know how some Pentecostal churches, they just baptize in the name of Jesus. Right. Um, but at age 13, when I was at that um, non-denominational church, I was baptized there in the name of the Father, Son, and okay. Holy Spirit. So, okay. Um, when I went to the Roman church, the Catholic church in my town, um, they recognized that as a valid baptism because it was in a Trinitarian formula. And so okay. that's where I was what was it? What was it like receiving the Holy Eucharist for the first time for you? Oh, boy. I just felt like an intense amount of joy and peace. And uh, yeah. not trying to sound like a self-righteous zealot here, but <laughs> <laughs> for my first communion, uh, while everybody else was going, like, you know, receiving in the hands and stuff, that was something that never, like, really sat well with me. I actually went up there and I knew for communion, you know, I received on the tongue. Because I'm like, this is the way I want to receive our Lord. You know, I, I truly believe he's in the Eucharist. And this is, like, truly his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so I'm going to show him all the respect that I can right here. So wow. I just remember feeling, like, all that joy and um peace that i felt after that and it was just amazing so yeah wow wow I, so what I happens um so now you're catholic um and but at some point in time you go east you enter the melkite church right. tell, tell us about that that transition oh i would love to so going back to our subject earlier about how um and I was coming into the Catholic Church and I began researching and stuff, I began to discover that the Catholic Church isn't just Roman Rite. Mm -hmm. When I discovered that, I was like, wow, this is actually very interesting. So the very first Eastern Rite that I heard about was the Maronite Church. Yeah, and yeah. For those who do not know who the Maronites are, they are a um, Eastern Catholic Church that come out of Antioch. And there's a lot of them within Lebanon and in Syria, etc. There's even some, I believe, in like North Africa if I remember correctly. Um, so I, I came across them and um, eventually I began learning more about like other rites in the church. So I'm like, wow, there's more than one Eastern rite? <laughs> so I began hearing about the Melkites and the Ukrainians and the Ethiopians, the Coptics, the Indian church, the Sao Malabar, Sao Malankar church, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and the Syriac Catholics. Like there's a um, at least 23 Eastern Catholic churches. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we have a whole list of them. And so when I discovered them, I'm like, wow, these people have a very beautiful tradition. Now, the ones that I was attracted to the most were the Maronites and the Melkites. The, okay. reason, behind, the reason behind that is because ever since I was younger, I had a, like a huge interest in the Middle East. And by okay. extension, when I heard the Maronite liturgy, because um, on Sundays before I was um, had the privilege to go to Mass with my friend, I would watch um, Mass on YouTube. And this is before they had the live streaming and stuff, so I would watch the same video every single Sunday. And it was a, Mar 
it was a Maronite liturgy. And um, I just remember them, because they actually pray in Aramaic, which is the same exact language that Jesus spoke in. Mm-hmm. And so I was just very fascinated by that. Because yeah. I'm like, wow, these are the same exact people that are, are like the descendants of like the same tribes that Jesus was from. And um, they speak the same exact language as him. They have a very beautiful tradition. I said, this is what I want to be like. And I said, if I ever become like a priest or a deacon or something, I want to serve in these communities. And um, in addition to that, I came to find out that these are actually the churches that are the most persecuted in the Middle East. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And the terrorists. So I said, you know, if anything, I want to suffer with them. Wow. So that was just a huge action out there. Now, at the time when I was coming into the church, I wanted to be received through the Maronites, but it was impossible at the time because, as I mentioned earlier, I couldn't even go to a Catholic church. And, you know, also the Maronite church was very far away from it. Right now, it's not too far because I could drive to it. But, you know, at right. the time, I had, had no way of getting there. So I was received in the Roman church because I just wanted to have access to the sacraments and stuff. Um, so as time progressed, I began going to um, traditional Latin masses with my mother and who would take me and she loved it. But then again, I had this calling to just still look into the Eastern Rites. So there's a church in my town, it's called St. Peter's St. Paul. It's actually a Ukrainian Catholic and I began attending there in 2015. And I was actually the very first black parishioner there. Now, oh. People were very, very loving and receptive. They become like another family to me. They were actually very, very fascinated and very proud to see that somebody that isn't even of their ethnic background has knowledge and respect for the theological and ethnic and religious traditions of their church because, you know, a lot of Catholics don't aren't even familiar with who the Eastern Rites are because the Roman church makes up at least like 98% of the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. So I began starting liturgy with them and stuff. And I also, I remember going to my first divine liturgy. I felt this intense peace because yeah. um, in the Byzantine church, we have like a huge list of litanies. Yeah. We pray for everything. We pray for good weather. We pray <laughs> for hope. We pray for the health of everybody, the living and the deceased. And um, after every single one of those litanies, we say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Yeah. Lord, have mercy. I felt like this intense peace when I was there. So I began serving in the Ukrainian church for at least a year and a half or two years. And um, one day we had a visiting priest. I'm never going to forget this man, Father Peter Shashaka. He came to me after I served liturgy. And he's like, young man. He said, and he had like a New York accent. I can't, I can't <laughs> imitate it. I'm bad at it. But it's like New York accent. He said, young man, do you have a vocation? And I said, I may, I'm not sure, I hear it all the time. He said, why don't you come with me? So we go for a walk. And um, he was asking you know, about my, you know, my conversion story and my background. And I began telling him that I had interest in the Maronite church and the Melkite church, but mainly the Melkite church, because as I began going to this um, Byzantine liturgy, I found it to be basically like, a, um, if I went to the Melkite church, I'd be getting the best of both worlds. You'd be having the Middle Eastern influence of Antioch, and then you have the Byzantine liturgy. So I have like this huge attraction to the Melkite Church. So he said, um, 
I began telling him about the you know the Melkite Church and my interest in it. And mind you, the Melkite Church in uh, we have two Melkite churches in my state. In the state wow. Of the closest one is forty-five minutes away. Wow. So I began telling him that you know it's kind of impossible for me to get there. So he's like, you need to find a way to get there. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Now mind you, I didn't have a car at the time. So <laughs> it took a lot of sacrifice to get to that church. So um, the first time I went there was when the patriarch of the Melkite Church came to Connecticut. And so this is before I knew how to get to the church faster. So I took three trains just to get there. Wow. And in addition, an Uber. <laughs> it was a huge process. Now, my mindset was if the early Christians could walk to church from my very far distances, I could do the same thing. And yeah. plus, I'm like more of a city boy. I'm, so I'm used to taking trains and stuff. I used to take the trains to school. So uh, I remember when I first went to that church, I felt, and it, like, felt like this intense amount of peace. And mm. I heard a voice saying, Chris, this is where you belong. Yeah. And so, you know, when they celebrated the divine liturgy, and I remember when the patriarch came in, patriarch Yusuf Abbasi, I was very, very excited. Um, oh my gosh, like my heart basically dropped when he came in, because like that's like the closest thing of like seeing the Pope almost. Yeah. And so, um, with that being said, we got to take pictures and stuff, and I would, I was like, you know what, Chris, you need to find a way to get to this church. So I would take like a bus or two buses just to get to church there. And I was just I just thank God that you know I found a way to even get to that church in the first place. And I began serving liturgy probably um three months after being there because the deacon at the time, he's now our priest, God bless his soul. Um, he found out I knew how to serve the Byzantine liturgy. So you're gonna start serving at the altar works. <laughs> so I at the altar and you know it's just been a great privilege and a huge blessing and currently I'm still starting my vocation with them so that's my story with the Melkite Church yes yeah that's amazing was your uh your first experience in the Byzantine the, the singing of the liturgy what did, what did that what did that what did that do to you was that was that amazing absolutely because yeah. um I'm somebody that's very very fascinated with liturgical arts so when it comes to singing, when it comes to um, like little liturgical movements, uh, iconography, etc., I was yeah. just blown away. Now, mind you, in the Byzantine churches, depending on the ethnic background, right. the chanting may sound a little different. So yeah. when you go to like a Ukrainian church or a, a Russian church, etc., you hear more of like the Slavic tone of it, and, and then when you go to a Mokai church you hear more of like that Antiochian Arabic influence within the liturgy. Yeah. And also that Greek influence that has inf like influenced Arabic liturgy. Yeah. And so um, when I first went into the Byzantine church for my first time and seeing like the um, iconostasis, and for those who don't know what the iconostasis is, it's a, um, has like, it's a huge screen that separates the nave and the holy place. Mm -hmm. The holy yeah. place is where the, um, the altar is at. So basically, in a sense, but not necessarily, but a little bit um, equivalent to what the Roman Church has when it comes to root screens or the um, altar room. And so just going into the church and seeing all the beautiful iconography and the chanting and uh, the embracement of the people, which is a, a huge thing to me, I just felt at home. And I said, well, Chris, this is where you belong. And so yeah. 
that's you know where it all began. And then, just as I mentioned earlier, going to the Melkai liturgy, that was even a huge influence as well because I had the same exact experience that I had in the Ukrainian church, but I felt more at home. Yeah. 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 That's why, yeah, you and I have a very similar story. The first, the first Byzantine church I went to was a, it was called St. Peter and Paul. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I love the Eastern liturgy, especially especially the Byzantine Um and so by our point of departure was that I felt at home there too. I felt that my liturgical heart is in the East. And I still say that today. It is. But where I guess where I was living at after the liturgy was over, you know, everyone comes back out to the area, you know, everybody's on their way home or they're eating refreshments. Right. And we're out there and everybody, they're going back to speaking in their, their native language. And mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. So I felt a little bit distant from the community because I didn't, I guess your experience is different because they sort of embraced you. They sort of, you know, and so that, I guess that's our little point of departure. I think if I had your experience, if I felt more, oh, these people are receptive, you know, they're not just going into their little circles and speaking their own language. I, I probably, yeah, I probably would have went East as well. But, but how, how was, have, I mean, what has been your experience as, as a black man? Um, and apparently there are not many, um, in your in your liturgical right, how has that experience been for you? Very positive one, to be honest, because um, both of the churches that I went to, as I said earlier, were very like in like they embraced me, and I'm yeah. just very proud to see that somebody of a different like ethnic background was able to come to their church. Now, let me do tell you something though. There are some churches in the East, whether it's Catholic or Orthodox, that are very like ethnocentric and not meant to be taken personal, but it's because a lot of these people, a lot of them are older, and by extension, a lot of them are immigrants that have come to this country, and so they're just mm-hmm. very used to being around like their own people. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of these people are more ethnic than they are Catholic or Orthodox. Uh, so some uh, people just go to church out of habit, and um, so it has like no reflection upon like the faith whatsoever. Um, now, when I went to the Melkite church, when they saw that I knew the prayers and I was doing the sign of the cross, like the Byzantines and stuff, after the liturgy, they all came to me and they were all hugging me and kissing me and embracing <laughs> me because they saw me, they saw me the first time when I went to see the patriarch. They're like, hey, you know, we remember you. And they're like, are you Melkite? Like, where are you from? And they would ask me my ethnic background. Some of them thought I was from Ethiopia. I get that all the time. <laughs> are, are you from like, are you Ethiopian? Are you from Egypt? Where are, where are you from? And I, you know, I would tell them my, you know, my ethnic background, which is African American, Puerto Rican, and Cape Verdean. And after liturgy, they had like a, they have coffee all. Unfortunately, yeah. we don't have this now because of the pandemic that we're now seeing. But it's something that I really, really love to sing, and that I did not get from the Latin church I went to and the uh, Ukrainian church. Now, the Ukrainian church we would have events together, but all like you know have family time and stuff together but at this parish we had we had it every single sunday there was like not like a sunday we did not have coffee y'all were all come together and had like a huge meal together i was like my you know my another family and so um with with that being said i had a huge experience and i began to learn more about the culture and in fact a lot of them were impressed with um me like speaking with them because i already had some knowledge of like the Arabic culture, because um, my church is predominantly Palestinian. You have people from Lebanon, 
We have some from Israel. We have some that have even come from Egypt, etc. Mm. And so um, the church is very diverse because it's not only these, these people from the Middle East, but we have people who came from, like, let's say, Ireland. Like, for mm. example, my priest is of Irish descent, and his wife, yes, we have um, married priests in the local church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His, his wife is from Macedonia. Um, you know, so we have people of all different backgrounds, and we've had people from Haiti and Jamaica who have come wow. to visit our parish. And when they came to, um, even African-Americans, but when they came to visit one Sunday and they saw me serve liturgy, they told me that it was a huge relief to see me there because they thought they were going to be the only African-Americans there. But um, I began telling them about the Melkite Church and the history and stuff, and they were just very fascinated. So personally, me being a black man in a church that has like different like ethnic backgrounds that I like, yeah. I've grown up around, I think that it's kind of like a missionary effort if you think of it, because... You know, when these different people come into the church and they see there's another black man there, they're thinking, okay, well, there's a reason why he's here. There must be something special about this church mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. he has departed from his African-American, uh, you know, roots and like the black churches and stuff. There has to be something special about this church. Yeah, and so yeah. people have come to me and asked me like different questions, you know, why did you leave the, you know, the black church and stuff of that sort? And as we were speaking today, I have like the privilege and the honor of being able to tell my story. And so, yeah, here I am. That's and nice. another thing I'd like to touch on later on, as we discussed later on, you know, because we were talking about the Nation of Islam and stuff earlier, yeah. touch upon um, the African church's roots in the early church. Because yeah. a lot of um, Africans aren't really familiar with that and how the church was huge in the African continent. Right, right, right. And so um, I'd love to touch upon that later on as well. Yeah. And before before we get there, let me let me ask you this. Um, why not the Orthodox Church? Very interesting question. Okay. Well, in Catholicism, and in, uh, we have to also remember that they feel like different rights. And so... Personally, me, I decided to stay Catholic because I wanted to, number one, be in touch with my uh, ancestors, metaphorically speaking. And number two, I personally believe that it's the fullness of the faith when it comes to ecclesiology mm -hmm. and um, theology. And um, with the Catholic Church, it's just the beauty, it's beautiful to see that the church is very diverse. Now, we have to also remember that in the Orthodox world, there's two different Orthodox churches. You have the Eastern Orthodox churches, which is all the Byzantine churches, like the Greeks, the Russians, mm -hmm. the Romanians, etc. And then in Oriental Orthodoxy, you have the Ethiopians, oh, the Coptics, yeah. the, Coptics, the Syriacs, yeah. the Indian church, etc. Um, so something for me that really stood out, as I mentioned earlier, was ecclesiology. In addition to the history of the church, I'm somebody that agrees, when it comes to Oriental Orthodoxy, I'm somebody that agrees with um, the Council of Chalcedon. When, when it comes to um, the Eastern Orthodox, I'm someone who's um, more on the like Melkite side of things, and I'll, I'll elaborate upon that. And this is also the position of a lot of Eastern Catholics, is that there's really not a huge contradiction between both communions. 
Um, we have bishops that have wrote about this, like, for example, um, Bishop Joseph Tawil has a book on the Church of Antioch. And you can actually find this book on the Sophia Press's uh, website, which is the Melchi FLP of Newton. And now, believe it or not, even after the schism between both West and East, there was intercommunion between both churches. To be mm-hmm. specific, the Church of Antioch and the Church of Rome. Okay. And this is because they would live like you know in coexistence. Now, this is also what led up to the like you know the Council of Florence when there was like the um, the intention of uniting both churches. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Because there was like a relationship between the two. Yeah. Now. I'm also somebody that doesn't believe that there's really a lot of theological differences when it comes to the filioque way and ecclesiology when understood properly. Because you could have a very, very, very extreme view of something. For example, in the Roman church, you may have an extreme view of how the papacy is supposed to um, be um, exercised, which makes Mm -hmm. a lot of Eastern Christians uncomfortable. But then you could have also a very, very extreme view from the East, which basically says that everything Latin is evil, which is something yeah. that I agree with. Even cons- especially considering that, for example, St. Augustine and St. Jerome were recognized by ecumenical councils themselves. Mm-hmm. So my position is, I believe the Catholic Church and being a Melchior is basically the reconciliation between both uh, traditions. And mm-hmm. another thing we have to mention is that the theological disagreements that we now see between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Church were also um, present before the Great Schism. Yeah. So, do you think, do you think, now we're talking about the, now the, the schism, do, do, you, do you have a sense that that was more, was based on, and this is where I'm at on it, that it was, initially it's more had to do with more about politics than it had to do about theology. And I Absolutely. think theology came in on the back end um, but we're just really just talking about um, differences in um, power and influence. There's a lot of politics involved in the whole thing. Yeah, and um, we can even still see it today, unfortunately, with our brothers in the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's a huge separation between the Church of Moscow and the Church of Constantinople, which isn't really any new, like nothing new, because this has been going on even in the Middle Ages with yeah. uh, disagreements upon, like, um, who should be the ecumenical patriarch, or if there even shall be an ecumenical patriarch. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, things of that sort. But to even touch upon politics even more, now we have to also remember that in the early church, there was um, a lot of competition between the Eastern Roman Empire right, and the Western right, Roman Empire. Right, right, because, right. Because um, we see that uh, the Greeks <sighs> had some hostility towards the Latins and vice versa. Yep. Yeah. Because the Greeks would view the Latins as kind of being savages almost. Mm-hmm. So um, one of our um, patriarchs, this is before the Great Schism, or I'm sorry, after the Great Schism, who was um, Patriarch Peter III, who was the Patriarch of Antioch at the time where there was a division between both East and West. When he was addressing, uh, I believe it was Patriarch Michael Solaris, who was the one that was excommunicated by um the cardinal of the Roman Church, he said something along the lines that, you know, there's no reason to be uh, separated from the Roman Church. They may um, be different in, like, their customs, or they may not be... He even said something along the lines that, you know, as Latin, they may not have, like, the 
the intelligence as much as we do. <laughs> but um, this is no reason to be separated from them. And so, um, like I said, a lot of it has to do with politics and competition. Right, also yeah. remember that um, going back to the whole viewing of the Latins as savages, a lot of the Latins weren't even evangelized in the early church because a lot of the theological things like ecumenical councils and discussing like the hypostatic union, etc., mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, a lot of these things were discussed in the Eastern churches. Right, right. Let's Creed even comes from the East. And yeah. um, some of your, some of your greatest theologians from you know Gregory Nyssa and everybody. I mean, they were they were they were Eastern. So yeah, yeah. And so while a lot of these things were being discussed in the East. The, yeah. the Pope of Rome was still evangelizing the Franks and the Goths and you name it. In yeah. fact, Italy was even fully converted because, and this is going back to the accusation that the Roman church is supposedly like this invention of the Roman Empire to manipulate people or yeah. what have you. Um, Rome had a huge disagreement with there even being Catholicism in their empire, which is even explained yeah. there was a huge persecution persecution of the Roman church yeah. going back to the catacombs etc so uh that's uh my position on the whole thing yeah that's that's that's, that's very interesting um so going back to where you know you were talking about earlier about what, what did you find in your conversations because you're in the people you talk to in your neighborhood because that, do you encounter these, um, what did they call them, um, you know, five percenters or Hebrew Israelites? I mean, do you encounter these people? What's your, what's your experience with them? And talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I've encountered, I mean, encountered many different people. Like you said, the five percenters, Hebrew Israelites, Nation of Islam, the Conscious Movement, you name it. The um, Pan-Africans who are very anti-Catholic. Now, yeah. I want to bring to everybody's attention that I am pro-black. I believe in the um, improvement of our people, improving like, our businesses and just being like very, very um, influential in society and the American especially because, you know, we help build this country. So it's something we should be proud of. Now, encountering these people, a lot of it has to go back to anti-Catholic like, um, Catholic accusations that I brought up earlier, such as, you know, the uh, Roman Church being this invention of like Constantine to be enslaved black people or what have you, just all these different like pseudo historical understandings of things. So encountering them, um, I commonly hear things such as you know, besides the one I just mentioned, that being a Christian, not just being a Catholic, but being a Christian, you're still like a house Negro or you're still uh, on a plantation, so to speak. But what I also noticed when encountering these people is that they have a huge ignorance of Christianity and specifically Catholicism in Africa. But we have to also remember that some of these groups don't even recognize themselves as being African, such as specific groups of Hebrew Israelites. Now, they don't even all agree with each other, which is why they have like multiple different camps on stuff, like ISUPK, um, GMS, you name it. Um, so one thing that I take pride in as a black man, and specifically being a Christian of an ancient church, is that we have roots in Africa. You know, for example, the Catholic Church in the North Africa had a huge population. And this is like before all the schisms with the Donatists, 
the Aryans, the Pelagians, and by extension, the um, Arabic conquest that has like really, really influenced the church in North Africa. And um, if you want to learn more about this, going back to this book, it's called The Patriot of Antioch Throughout History, an introduction by Archbishop Joseph Tewill. He actually addresses a lot of these things. One thing that he addressed is that North Africa was part of the Latin church, like when, like within Carthage and stuff of that sort. Right, and so right. We have to take into account that a lot of the saints and the theologians come from Africa. Bring up the St. Augustine, uh, Tertullian, who was the, like, basically the godfather of Latin theology. Um, pope Victor I, who was actually a pope from Africa, who yeah. was a bishop of Rome. Yeah. And he was actually the one that made Latin the liturgical and theological language of the Western Church. Yeah. People don't know this. We have a lot of different uh, fathers that come from Africa. And so when I hear like these accusations such as, oh, well, Christianity is the white man's religion meant to enslave you and uh, keep you pacified and what have you, I just blow it off as pure nonsense. Especially when I hear some of the uh, arguments from like these different like sects, especially like Hebrew Israelites who like take certain scripture verses out of out of context. <laughs> like, for example, like when they cite Deuteronomy twenty eight and say, "Okay, you see that that relates to the African slave trade." Well, when you look at that verse, it says, "Nobody shall buy you." And this uh, Josephus, who was actually a Jewish historian, actually gets commentary on that. And he said that it had already happened within Egypt after the um, taking over of Jerusalem by the Romans. And how yeah. nobody would buy them, nobody would recognize them, and how they suffered all these different like plagues and what have you. And so I hear all these different accusations. I just, like I said, I blow it off. But I also yeah. noticed a lot of black Christians, I'm sorry, black um, anti-Christians yeah. attack Christianity altogether because of um, what our ancestors had to go through. And that was right. being colonized by um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Right. Who enforced like heretical doctrines such as like, you know, blacks are the descendants of the curse of Ham and thus they should be enslaved type stuff. So when yeah. people see that, they say, okay, well, that's just Christianity what's good. Right. includes the Catholic Church. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And, um, it's a, a problem there. It's a, it's a, it's a, first, first of all, it's a problem in distinction. I think they they can't distinguish between bad actors in the religion itself. If right. if someone is like you take you take a, a Catholic like someone modern like Nancy Pelosi who calls herself a Catholic because right. she doesn't follow the faith, she's not a representation of the faith. But they always want to take all these bad actors right. or or, uh, um, or many people in the United States who are involved in the slave trade and say because they were Christians, therefore Christianity is evil. Despite the fact that they weren't even following, you know, a lot of aspects of Christianity. And so that's the problem. The problem and distinction is first. And um, and then you just have the, the, the problem itself of Hebrew Israelites. And I'll let you talk about this and explain this what that is. Because a lot of people who hear Hebrew Israelites, they may be more familiar. The first time a lot of people got to hear that name was when um, in Washington, D.C., maybe a year or so ago. You had those boys from Kentucky. Um, there was that, that tension between them and then the Native American guy was there. But your Hebrew Israelites, they, they won't even admit that they're Protestants, right? That they're, they're using Sola Scriptura. Um, <laughs> and I could go even further to embrace a lot of Hebrews. <laughs> right, so talk a little bit about Hebrew Israelites. What, what is that? Okay, well, 
Hebrew-Israelites is basically a movement among the African-American community and by extension, um, like, Hispanics, depending on which Hebrew-Israelite group you're encountering, because there's okay. different camps. Some Hebrew-Israelites will recognize um, Hispanics as a member, like, part of the name um, Israel. Some won't. It really depends who you talk to. And then you okay. also have uh, individual Hebrew-Israelites who don't really follow a specific um, camp, but they just basically rely upon themselves, so to speak. Basically, the equivalent in Protestantism, like being like a homeowner, so to speak. I don't go to church. I interpret the Bible how I want to interpret it. I don't need a, a pastor or somebody to tell me what this means type thing. And so um, the Hebrew Israelites, like I said, are African-Americans who um, believe that they are the descendants of Israel. And that as a result of um, all the different like sins of Israel, that explains why we are brought to the America through the slave trade. They would interpret um, the new America as being the new Egypt, so to speak. And so they are a black supremacist group, and they're basically like very similar to like the Nation of Islam, um, certain black conscious movements. They believe that the white man is Esau in the Bible, and that um, basically the white man is the devil, and that they're going to be enslaved and killed for what they did to our ancestors. And also, um, they embrace, like I said, it really depends on who you talk to because there's different camps. Going back to what you said about Protestantism and like them embracing Protestantism, I totally agree with that, but they also embrace many different heresies such as Gnosticism and, mm. and um, yeah. Arianism yeah. and, and some Pelagianism. Um, we even have some who even embrace like some forms of paganism when they talk about because they believe in reincarnation. They don't believe that um, after death you go to heaven or hell. You're just gonna reincarnate, so to speak, okay. which is something I find is very, very uh, ridiculous altogether. When they when they quote certain scriptures, like for example, when they say that um, John the Baptist is like basically Elijah reincarnated, and if mm -hmm. you say, look, he, it's him in the spirit. Bro, that's him in the spirit, bro. That's not uh, a separate person. And, like, you know, they, you know, it's basically exegesis in, like, the entire, butchering the entire context of what it is. You just yeah. look at This is not, like, the intention of what's being talked about. Because yeah. um, I want to bring up somebody, and I want to give a shout-out to Abona Sebastian Carnazzo. He's a Melkite priest, and he's very familiar with the, the theology, scripture, history, you name it. Um, he actually has Bible studies every single Wednesday, and he's actually located in San Jose, California. Very, very intelligent man. One thing that he brings up is that when you look at scripture to know who is writing, who's, and, uh, right, yeah. where is he writing, what right. time is it being written, yeah. and why is he writing, who's the audience, yeah. what's going on? It's easy to look at scripture and say, oh, it's saying that, or it's saying this, or this is why he's saying, uh, specific things. But another thing you have to also remember, as Steve Ray, are you familiar with Steve Ray, the apologist? Yeah, yeah. The apologist Steve Ray, huge fan of him. Another thing he brings up is that when you look at the scriptures, you can't look at it through a modern day lens and an right. American lens at that. You have to look at it in the historical context. So you have to take right. off your American glasses and All put right. on your Jewish glasses and right. look at it through that time period. And you have to go back in time and see what's what exactly is going on. Yeah. And so... This isn't just about Hebrewisms, but by um, everybody who takes the scripture out of context altogether yeah. and looks at the scriptures and say, okay, it's saying this, it's saying that. 
So context, context, context is something that's very, very important when looking at these things. Yeah, yeah. As Catholics, we definitely in the church teaches this that scripture has two different senses. As has a literal sense and a spiritual sense. And the spiritual sense is broken down to allegorical, anagogical, um and um and, and moral. And and so I think it would benefit everybody if we just look at scripture, first look at it in the literal sense. What is being said here? And like you said, be historical crit about it. Who said it? Um, what period of time was it? And and what? Uh, and, and then we can move on once we understand. Okay, what's being said? Just a literal sense. Then we can move on to other things. But never at any point in time can we engage in isogesis, this isolating of of one particular scripture without looking at the whole scripture, the whole the, all of what God is trying to say. Because scripture is God breathing, so he, the word is not going to contradict itself. But when we isolate one verse from everything else, eventually you're going to come up with a contradiction in that verse somewhere else. That's what happens when, when you isolate things. And so we have to get away from that. And we also, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that we can take the, the Catholic Bible, take seven books out of it, and, and then say the Catholic Church is wrong is just silly. Well, you remove seven books. So <laughs> let's, let's bring our books back in. Let's have a conversation about the whole Bible. And also, I like how you brought out the fact that um, how Hebrew Israelites is Israelites and these other groups. I even thought, like, just through Nation Islam in there, how they've embraced other heresies, and also what they've also embraced. I would add to that what you said: the idea of liberation theology, which is really a political movement. Liberation theology, um, it, it looks at scripture through through the context of the the Exodus of, of the Jews and, and says that. Um, the, the point of scripture is the mission of Jesus Christ is to deliver people um, on the margins out of their um, out of their place of uh, poverty or, or whatever. And to do this, liberation theology says we have to invade against the people. We have to fight against the people who have put them in that situation. So the, the poor and the rich through liberation theology, they become at odds with one another. And the reason why the Hebrew Israelites and nation Islam have been successful with this idea of liberation theology is they, they've always tried to cling to a certain um, socioeconomic group of people who may felt that life hasn't treated me great, who may feel like, oh, the government is against me. Oh, I'm poor because of this. And they've, they've taken advantage of this group of people by filling their heads with this, this poison. Um, and so it's very, I think it's very unfortunate, but they've, they've been very successful at that. Right. Absolutely. I totally agree. And it's like, I do sympathize when they, you know, talk about, you know, the oppression of black people. That's a very important subject, but it's not just black people who are being oppressed. I'm also sympathetic towards, like, like I said earlier, our Arabic brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are being yeah. persecuted. So if, we, if we're going to be sympathetic towards, like, one group, it has to be other groups as well. Romani yeah. people, for example, or whoever, you name it. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is that a lot of these groups have a lot of conspiracies about the Catholic Church um, as yeah. part of earlier. and um, some people look at history of Catholicism and look at like the transatlantic slave trade and see how some of the uh, people who were members of the church did in fact um, enslave black Africans. It's, it is true. It's a fact. It's happened in Puerto Rico with uh, the Taino natives and the Africans there. But what needs to be taken into account is that these people are excommunicated by the church, in fact, even condemned. There are many documents from popes upon popes who have condemned racism and who have condemned 
the transatlantic slave trade. Now, um, I can't remember some of them off the top of my head, but one that really comes up to my mind is the one from Pope Leo XIII, who was actually my mm. favorite pope. He, he still called, it was called Catholica Ecclesia. And um, uh, it was like made in like 1888, if I remember correctly. Forgive me for dates. Yeah. But he talks about how, number one, we condemn, it's about the magisterium, we condemn the slave, the um, translated slave trade. In fact, I have your direct quote right here. And first he talks about this. He says, the maternal love of the Catholic Church embraces all people. Thus the name Catholic Church is a universal church. It's not just for whites, it's not just for blacks, it's not just for Asians, it's not just for Hispanics, etc. And mind you, I did paraphrase this quote a little bit because it's very, very long. So he says this, the zeal of the church for liberating the slaves has not languished with the passage of time. On the contrary, the more it bore fruit, the more eagerly it glowed. There are, are incontestable historical documents which attest to that fact. Documents which command the positivity and the names of them are many predecessors. And he brings up many predecessors that have condemned slavery all throughout time throughout the transatlantic slave trade. So he brings up like, uh, number one, like Pope Gregory the uh, Ninth, and then we have Pope Pius the Second, Pope Leo the um, Tenth, Pope Paul the Third, Pope Urban the um, Eighth, etc., Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. And he also continues, he says the following. He says, they also took care less to the seeds of slavery return to those places from which the evil institution, and they say that again, evil institution had been cut away. And he says, we cannot repudiate such a laudable inheritance. For this reason, we have taken every occasion to openly condemn the gloomy plague of slavery. So people who always talk about like the Catholic Church's involvement with slavery and stuff, they don't distinguish between the actions of the people and right. the laudable dogmatic teachings of the right. magisterium because right. people don't know the difference between the two right. we could base for any single group so if we're gonna if we want to base actions upon what we believe then right. we, could, we have to say the same thing about let's say hebrew israelites who have actually killed people yeah, yeah. Hebrew israelites who have sentenced children to death with yeah. by their own means within garages because they thought the child was gay or yeah. you have some uh cases where they would even go and shoot up, let's say, like, kosher shops. Like, we just seen this, like, a few months ago in um, Jersey, not too long oh, wow. ago. Wow. Actually going and massacring people by their own means. Um, you know, but there's people who do not believe what I'm saying. You could actually go and look up these encyclicals for yourself and look at the context of what's being spoken about here. The yeah. slavery has been condemned, and by extension, the uh, condemnation of persecuting Africans was condemned because he also says this. He says, we were bitterly afflicted by the accounts of the trials which harass all inhabitants of the African interior. This, also, this is speaking about West Africa, our, you know, our ancestors. And he talks about how, you know, it was just unfortunate to see how Africans were sold like cattle. And were just like, you know, taken away from their families and separated from their families. You know, we have many saints who have even condemned the slave trade. I don't remember the name exactly. But we have somewhat uh, very like merciful to the slaves, and um, every single time like a slave master would go and like whip them, they would like, try to prevent it. But people don't talk about the positive things here. We always yeah. focus on the negative. Right. And so right. that's one thing I want to bring up. Now another thing I also want to mention. Nobody really knows this, 
But we have a bishop, God rest his soul, Archbishop Joseph Ryle in the Melchizedek Church, who has actually marched with Martin Luther King and tried to prevent the, um, the persecution of black people in the South. In fact, he even started his own Melchite church for African-Americans in the South called St. Moses the Black, Melchite Catholic wow. Church. And wow. he was persecuted by the Klan. He was uh, beat up. He was even like threatened to be killed. Like, but he went through it anyway. But we don't ever focus upon these things. Or what, yeah. what about, uh, let's say, there's a uh, father, Coily, who was killed by the Ku Klux Klan because he married a Klansman's daughter to an African uh, Puerto Rican. Well, we don't ever talk about these things. So, wow. you know, these are like a lot of historical things that we forget about. But the church is, but they're not, just like it's pro anybody else, pro black. But we never focus upon that. And I think <laughs> a lot of it has to do with the history because of like what negative people have done. And then people also go to like, let's say, predominantly like, like white parishes and they'll see like images of like a white Jesus or like a white saint. Yeah. They say, see, yeah. about us. Look at that. Yeah. But it has yeah. nothing to reflect upon the faith. You have to remember that these churches were like established by immigrants and are just depicted them upon like uh, their ancestry. Yeah. When I went to the Ukrainian church, they depicted Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes like a Ukrainian. When I went to the Irish church, they depicted him with red hair. When I went to the Arabic church, they depicted him with like tan skin and black hair. I mean, right. it's everywhere. Right. And when you look at the ancient iconography of Africa, they did the same exact things. Just look at the Ethiopian icons. So I mean, yeah. it's a universal thing. There shouldn't be this division upon like his race and what have you. Yeah. But unfortunately, this is something that's uh, a topic upon people who just yeah. want to like fight over this. But it's like, if Jesus were to come back today and be like, let's just say he comes right now, like right now in the second come, and he's a race that you hate, would you still love him or would you hate him? So it really <laughs> changes when it comes to the race part of it. Well, if Jesus came as white, well, then you know he, he's just uh, this uh, evil person then. Or if he came as Asian, or if he came as black, you know what I mean. So, mm -hmm. just something to think about. Something to really yeah, consider. yeah, that's a lot to think about. That's a powerful talk. Yeah. Hey Christian, we're winding down now, and um, so we're gonna play a quick game here that I call five questions and, and five answers. Okay, so I'm gonna see if I can catch you off guard. I'm gonna ask you five things. You have to just answer the question. You have to spend a whole lot of time there. All right. Sure. So, the first question: um, the Patriots or the Red Sox? I don't. Know, I don't really follow sports, but you know what? If I had to pick, shush, maybe Red Sox. I'm close to Boston. You said Patriots or Red Sox? I'm joking. I'm messing with you, man. Two different sports. <laughs> All right. Favorite site. Favorite site. And one of my favorite sites, I'd have to say, is called Death to the World. And no, it's not an emo site. It's actually um, relates to the early church fathers, and it talks about putting death to your passions. That's one of my favorite sites. Another favorite site of mine, I'd have to say, is um, the Institute of Catholic Culture. For okay. those who do not know what that is, do you know? Have you heard of it before? I've heard of it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been to the website that I recall. Oh, I, I highly encourage you guys to look into it. But they have over like thousands and thousands of free Catholic audio regarding theology history, apologetics, you name it. And the founder is actually um, a priest of our eparchy, and eparchy is a diocese. And um, his name is Abuna Carnazzo. Abuna Hezekiah Carnazzo. was actually the friend, I'm sorry, the brother of Abuna Sebastian Carnazzo that I brought up earlier. So that's yeah. one of my favorite websites. Yeah. I don't know. What, um, 
your favorite genre of music? Favorite genre of music? That's very hard to decide, but I grew up from uh, old black folks, so I have to say a lot of it is like around like the soul music of the 1970s and the 60s and the 50s. Also a fan of rap, jazz, um, and but most importantly, I am a huge fan of Gregorian chant and all the ancient <laughs> chants of the church. Right. chant, you name it. That's yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard. Yeah, I, th- I gotta go. So, so this is this is the second question. So you saying if you have to pick between Byzantine chant and Gregorian Gregorian chant, you're going with Byzantine. Yeah, personally, <laughs> I love both. They're both beautiful. So it's a hard. Decision, you know? well, speaking, Byzantine chant in our liturgy, yes. All right, so, um, say you die, which I guess is, is inevitable for all of us. Right. What do you want the one thing for people to remember about you, Christian Mazzaria? Well, one thing I want people to remember is that I am a poor sinner. I'm not a holy man, but I'm still striving for holiness. But I would like to leave a legacy where a empowers people to look more into the Catholic Church and to um, also remember me as somebody who's trying to reach out to the Black community and, and to show them how Catholicism isn't as evil as they may think it is. To like mm-hmm. put away the conspiracy theories and all these pseudo-historical understandings of things and to truly humble yourself and look into what it's really been, um, what was really discussed and what was really um, reflected in history. Yeah. Um, I have to say also, God willing, I'd like to be remembered as a saint one day. That's that's our that's all of our goals. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's yeah. All right, last question: If you had to had to live in any other country but this one, which country would it be? Definitely Ethiopia. <laughs> Definitely Ethiopia. Yes. Ethiopia yeah. or. I'm trying to think wherever it would be. I mean, there's just so many different, like, choices. It's really hard for me to choose. Yeah. <laughs> but Ethiopia, yeah. because personally, I would like to live um, as, like, a married priest or deacon, but, like, in a monastic way with, a, um, you know, children and stuff and away from the world and other distractions of the world that we um, have here in the um, United States, unfortunately. You know, with, like, all the secularism and then we have all this technology and everything, you know what I mean? So having that lifestyle like that and in a country like that would be a huge blessing, especially since the country is predominantly Christian. Yeah. And for those who don't know, it's one of the very first Christian states before Europe was even fully uh, converted to Christianity. So, yes. Ethiopia was. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on the Talking Catholic, man. It was, it was a pleasure having you here. I love this discussion. And everybody who's watching this or listening to this on, on podcast. You guys got to make sure you, you pray for Christian and to help him continue to discern his vocation. Because um, you, you, you've been a blessing to us, and we hope you continue to be a blessing, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, for those who are really interested in looking more into like the um, early church, I highly recommend looking into my pal's books, Mike Aquilino. Some books I'd like to introduce are The Ways of the Fathers Praying with the Early Christians, and the Fathers of the Church, an introduction to the first Christian teachers. Highly recommend this. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Smart man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Boom, we can't get fooled again.